you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. What is the long-term effect of too much information? Information, information, I just need some information. I've been dying, I've been dying, is it lack of education? I've been reading, I've been reading without any transformation. I'm addicted, I'm addicted, is it overstimulation? Hey. Welcome to the Success Report. The Success Report. Hear ye, hear ye, come one, come all. You are listening to the Sixth Sense Report with Joel Nikoloff and Darnell Samuels. Man, we're we're doing it again, bro. We're we're bringing the people something they need to hear. <laughs> yeah, no, most definitely, most definitely. We have a special guest uh, for you today, uh, Nick Hudson uh, from uh, Panda Data Analytics. Welcome, welcome. Thank you very much, and hello, everybody. Yes. And so for um, those who don't know who Nick Hudson is, uh, Nick is an actuary with with broad international experience in finance, who has settled into a career as a private equity investor. He's a man of wide ranging interests, an avid reader of canonical literature, a classical music aficionado, and an enthusiastic amateur ornithologist. He has been (laughs) <laughs> what? That's enough. I don't like these long bios. And that sounds like, <laughs> oh, that sounds like something the organization put out for me. I, that's you know, exactly right? what it was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so good. oh my word! You know, really? Okay. okay yes. Okay, that's good. It's, so okay. Okay. All, well, well, tell us. Tell us more about yourself. Well, that's more or less guilty as charged. Um, <laughs> I, I I run a private equity fund. Um, and yes, I'm uh, qualified as an actuary, although I've never worked as one for a day in my life. Um, the, the profession and, and, and I were probably not temperamentally suited. But, uh, and now, just since the whole COVID crisis uh, came around, I have set up an organization called Pandemics Data and Analytics, or PANDA for short. And we have been trying to replace bad science with good science since a year and a half ago. Yeah, so I mean for the how how does you know a, a private equity you know expert end up creating such an organization? You know, what was the impetus? You know, obviously on a on a more personal level, obviously, you know, sure. the corporate world or the 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 you know, the world level, it's almost obvious why we needed this, but but why you why what 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 was it that drove you to do this? Well, what the founders of Panda, original group of you know handful of people, uh, had in common was a very early sense that there was an enormous gap between what the media and social media were presenting to us and the actual facts of the matter, reality on the ground. And I, I certainly had a, a strong sense of foreboding as I contemplated that gap. It felt to me as if we were facing a situation that embedded the seeds of an existential crisis, something that could rip apart the fabric of society. And uh, it was really that sense of foreboding that drove us to start speaking out and start challenging some of this mania that has been launched upon the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I think that's a, a fair assessment. I know for myself, you know, relatively early on, I felt like the risk was almost a mass hysteria because it was disproportionate. Like the risk in the media was disproportionate to the risk 
that the numbers were presenting. Yeah. Yeah, the, ba- the, the very basic fact that is I've never seen any uh, newspaper article in any mainstream media outfit or, or you know, TV newscaster uh, deliver is that for people of normal health under the age of 70, coronavirus presents what could fairly be described as negligible risk. Mm-hmm. Big missing fact. <laughs> yeah, like, and I would yeah. say so many people are like, how can you say that? Because the media yeah. does not portray it that way. But that's statistically, right. yeah. Yeah. That, that's what I saw very early on. Yeah, so I mean, when you, when you go into the, the studies of this, the best type of study for assessing this kind of claim is called a serology study, where you go and look for antibodies in a population of people drawn at random from a, a larger population. And you try to estimate the percentage of that population that has been infected by your relevant virus. And then by analyzing that, you can see what the infection fatality rate is. And the largest studies of that nature all point in pretty much the same direction, which is to say that for, uh, on, for the world on average, the mortality rate from an infection by coronavirus is around 0.15%. And if you just take the age cut at below 70s, it's 0.05%, just to say five in 10,000 chance of dying. And if you cut further by way of excluding people with serious comorbidities, and the word serious is important there, you get to an answer that says that the infection fatality rate for under 70s who do not have serious comorbidities is less than 0.01% or one in 10,000. So this is simply not a dangerous disease for those people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, it's, I think for so many people, the, the numbers in their head based on the media are like, you know, hundreds times what you've just described. You, you, would, you would be wrong because uh, it, it can get really, really bad. Um, in, the, in the panic sweepstakes, the, the leading entry that I've come across so far is from a poll conducted in Australia. And the Australians have gotten so panicked about this thing that the average person thinks that their chance of dying if they got coronavirus is 38% which is, you know, for an under 70 healthy, healthy person, that's 4,000 times more. <laughs> can, can you describe this as anything other than mass hysteria? Um, n- I think no, actually. It's, it's the, the mass hysteria is the central feature of all of this. Um, but I can also describe it as a lot of other things. There have been incredible travesties of public health and of medical science that have been perpetrated here um you know for example we most countries yours included (laughs) had in their position possession pandemic respiratory virus guidelines all of which ruled out doing things like quarantining the healthy people which is the term of art that was used to describe lockdowns before coronavirus arrived and they ruled out things like border closures and any number of the, the actions that have been undertaken here, cloth mask mandates, that kind of thing. 
Mm-hmm. And those, those in, in, within the space of a few days, all around the world, governments tore up those guidelines and without even going through the steps that those very guidelines required uh, in order for them to be revised and started implementing a set of strategies which had absolutely no empirical support whatsoever. And then even when it became quite apparent that those new methods were not working, they carried on with them for up to a year and a half. And so, yes, mass hysteria, no question, but also an enormous time to reflect on how institutional science and institutional public health has become corrupted and captured by big pharma interests and also a time to reflect on exactly what on earth we are teaching our budding scientists at our universities because they are not showing any sign whatsoever of being able to apply the scientific method in even the most basic of ways. Yeah, there, there's, there's a lot there to unpack. Um, I think, you know, the first sort of um, example of the, let's say, the lack of applying the scientific method, for me at least, was the idea of quantifying the decisions we have in front of us. I mean, I, I'm predisposed to look at things from an economic lens. Unfortunately, yeah. when I turn that, use that term, most people think of like business, finance, and not consider, you know, health, wealth, um, you know, individual prosperity, lives lost, those kind of things that are much more than just, you know, the, the finances. Um, and, and you guys put out a paper, I think, your fir- I think it was your first publication, Qualifying Years of Lost Life in South Africa due to COVID-19. And, and I think um, how, how should you know, the general population think about those decisions in terms of the lack of evaluating the options? Like you already described that you know, doing lockdowns was totally against what their preparedness plans were. Yeah. And they went totally against those. But to implement a decision like this, you know, I think they're all the, the population, the general population assumes, well, obviously they thought about, is this benefit us? Um, and you'd I like just to, wonder. You'd like to think that they did. <laughs> how but, how you know, do you do that yeah, when you're yeah. talking about, you know, older lives versus potentially long-term consequences? There's an element of naivety uh, around whenever anybody says that, well, you can't, you know, contrast the lives saved by lockdown against the, the economic costs. You know, this is not about the economy. This is an extremely naive view because the economy does, you know, nothing more than mediate life. And it's a well-known finding that economic devastation entails its own public health consequences. This has been applied in the pricing of insurance contracts for more than 100 years. The World Health Organization does burden of disease studies that assume that that is true when the austerity plans in the wake of the global financial crisis were rolled out. People wasted no time in pointing out that those austerity plans would have a mortality and morbidity consequence, which they probably did. And, you know, so this is not some kind of contentious point to be making that when you destroy somebody's livelihood, take away their means of earning an income, um, you are doing something that has a public health consequence. So what we attempted to do with that paper was to address the fact that at that point, no government in the world had conducted or at least published any 
study of the cost-benefit analysis. They were launching themselves into these draconian lockdowns without asking that essential question, at what cost? And so we, we put together a fairly simple paper. It was widely praised, quite widely published, picked up. The method was picked up by a number of other researchers who've you know, reproduced the results in their own countries and so on. And all we were trying to do was put onto the table this basic point that before you launch into a completely unprecedented policy uh, recommendation that contradicts all your pre-existing guidelines, you should contemplate the cost. And it was very interesting because in certain quarters, this was greeted by absolute yells of derision and bedwetting of a proportion that I've never encountered in my life. It, I was just flabbergasted. The irony of it, the, the big irony, is that I thought lockdowns were just wrong in principle because I come from a world in which I believe the right way to deal with the public is to inform them correctly of the risks that they face and allow them to evaluate their own risk management strategies. It's all mm. well and good if you're an academic in an ivory tower who's going to get their salary paid for the rest of the whole lockdown and you know, be able to continue doing interesting things on Zoom and so on. It's all very well for you to sit there saying that so-and-so should uh, lose his livelihood and, and uh, find that he can't feed his family. Um, but you know, I, I'm on the side of the so-and-so. I'm on the side of that person who uh, was at the receiving end of these insouciant academics and public health officials. I believe that that person ought to be permitted to receive the facts and to decide whether locking himself at home and foregoing income and being unable to feed his family is a risk worth taking in light of a virus that has a negligible chance of killing him. And people then say to me, oh, but, you know, but he could kill somebody else, that person. Yeah, I don't agree with that at all. Um, it's not, you know, th that is not right at all. Uh, first of all, if you're a vulnerable person and at risk, you can make a different risk reward judgment and decide that you're going to bunker down uh, for the duration of the epidemic. Secondly, you need for there to be people who are not vulnerable to the disease, who are willing to get infected in order to build up her, uh, herd immunity, as they call it, without a large number of deaths. Because if you, if you allow people who are non-vulnerable, or if you encourage people who are non-vulnerable to quarantine themselves at home, what you're in effect doing is forcing the disease, uh, disease burden onto the vulnerable. And so in doing so, you will increase the death rate from the circulating infection. And this was yet another finding from basic, basic epidemiology that was, has also not been spoken about in the press, uh, but which should have been. Because I believe what's happened is that the policy response has actually been the worst of both worlds. It has had enormous consequences in terms of collateral damage, and it has also worsened the outcomes from the disease in many, many ways. Mm -hmm. Now, now you mentioned uh, risk management strategies and risk reward judgment. And so for the average person at home, uh, 
they look or they're heavily reliant on SMEs, uh, subject matter experts. And, that, and that's, that's what these um, conversations at the kitchen table um, by the water cooler come down to, subject matter experts. And so how would you um, help somebody who's struggling with this? Because you have subject matter experts on one side and you have subject matter experts on the other side. And both, of course, disagree. So what practical steps would you suggest to a person who's struggling with what side do I pick? Because, yeah. Well, what would you first, first of all, I would say make sure you get both sides. Mm. Don't, don't join a team and start shouting at the other side. That is not how uh, knowledge is created. We, we only create knowledge in the continual framework of conjecture and criticism. And that takes place best in uh, an environment where open debate is encouraged and people refrain from name calling and, uh, and censorship and allegations of COVID denialism or conspiracy theorism or uh, what else have we heard? Anti-vaxxer, you know, the, the, these, these, mm-hmm. these slurs that are cast around. Whenever anybody hears an opinion that doesn't comport with their received wisdom. So that, that's step number one, is listen to both sides. Um, step number two is always be mindful of the conflicts of interest of the person who is speaking to you. Conflicts of interest, okay. Yep, big thing. In this regard, what we've got is a scientific community that by and large has been captured by corporate interests, in particular those of the big pharmaceutical companies and other vaccine stakeholders. So, you know, those people are in this age of cancel culture and uh, the, the, this relentless pressure on uniformity and uh, science as an institution. You know, follow the science, they say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is a <laughs> fundamentally unscientific idea. Um, you know, in, in this kind of day and age, what happens is that the dissident scientists are pretty much unable to speak out because their own institutions are so solidly captured by these stakeholders that if they put their heads above the parapet, those heads are likely to get shot off. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So always ask yourself, you look, what you should be looking for is that retired scientist who's no longer in the game, recently retired scientist, who's got nothing to gain, nothing to lose. What is that person saying about this story? Like Michael Yeaton? Yeah, Michael Eden is a good example of a retired guy, but I mean, our, our organization is full of them and it's very interesting to me. In fact, I would go as far as to say that you do not really meet a lot of retired scientists who are on the side of the, the, the official narrative. It's, mm-hmm. uh, that seems to be exclusively the preserve of people who, who have uh, some other interest in maintaining the hysteria. Okay, okay, that's good. So you mentioned the idea of uh, following the science and that gets thrown around. <laughs> but what happens if you don't even know science, right? So then it comes down to an issue of epistemology. Um, how do yes. we know that we know? So how would, how would you, what advice can you give to somebody who doesn't know what they don't know? If you get what I mean, right? Yeah. That, well, the, 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 if, if they... If they already know that, then, then half the battle is won. Um, I'm a, when it comes to epistemology, I'm a, a 
a fan of um, Karl Popper, whose philosophy basically goes around the idea that uh, explanations will all ultimately be replaced by better ones. So if we take an institutional approach to science as there being this kind of authority thing, this thing in a white coat, this thing with a stethoscope around its neck that is infallible and that only ever speaks the truth and that cannot be challenged in any way, shape or form, what you end up with is the very opposite of science, the very opposite of knowledge creation. Um, it's, a, it's an extremely distorted view of the world that says, follow the science. Um, in what we're dealing with, the only, the only means by which knowledge is known to grow is by way of conjecture and criticism. And if you shut down criticism, then you shut down knowledge growth. And that is what we have done with coronavirus. It, it, all sorts of assumptions have been made. The data emerge and contradict those assumptions, but because those assumptions emerged from, open quotes, the science, they remain unchallenged and we persist with strategies that are not working. Uh, on our show, we, we stole this term. I'm not sure if you've heard it. Steel manning, I think is sort of along the lines of what you started with when you said, you know, make sure you know both sides. Um, and, and for us, we try our best, you know, obviously we're going to fail in some regard to, to represent, you know, other views as, as strongly as possible, as opposed to, you know, the straw man version of those arguments. Um, and I, I think it sounds like you're saying that, you know, the mainstream media has basically forget steel manning. They're, they're essentially preventing the, the other arguments from even being evaluated. You're correct. That, 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 that is in no way an exaggeration. That is precisely what has happened. Um, and so we have these, this bizarre kind of situation where <clears throat> these fact checkers appointed by the same media groups, funded by the same supposedly charitable foundations, are sitting there taking apart the arguments without advancing actually any contradictory um, uh, engagement or debate, other than that's not what my scientists said. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, this gets to quite ridiculous extremes. Uh, recently, Anthony Fauci was heard saying oh. on camera, you know, his face, face to the camera quite deliberately that if you attack Anthony Fauci, you're attacking the science. This is quite astonishing arrogance. And for a man who's, you know, by, at, at, by then, the Fauci emails had already been leaked showing him to be an inveterate liar, you know, a person who mm -hmm. conspired to conceal the fact from the general public that his own scientist had advised him that the possibility that this virus had spent some time in a lab was high, you know, prevailed upon those scientists to go out into the world and to say exactly the opposite, to deny lab origin, to insist that a zoonosis was the, was the only uh, plausible theory. And an, an insistence which we now know not only to have been false in light of the information at the time, in fact, we knew it even then, but um, <clears throat> which we now can see they were only saying under pressure from him. Mm -hmm. um, that's just one of many. I mean, he has flip-flopped on every aspect of the narrative from the effectiveness of masks to the uh, importance of asymptomatic transmission to the actual mortality rate of the virus 
to you know just unbelievable uh, duplicity and and um, inconsistency and his defenders come out and say oh but that's because you know science responds to new information well nonsense you know um, in between Fauci flip flopping from masks don't work to masks do work the only material fact that emerged was a study by his own organization which. Um, had been conducted over the course of many years and which found out that uh, cloth masks were wholly ineffective in, sorry, even surgical masks were wholly ineffective in the case of controlling influenza outbreaks. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's just this, this kind of uh, almost ideological willingness to uh, turn the man in the white coat into a little demigod who we're going to believe no matter what and apologize for and defend as if he was a member of one of our tribes rather than force his ideas into the cold light of day for scrutiny by other scientists. Mm. You know, it's interesting. Our listeners, uh, most of them are, our believers are Christians. And so in, in the church, there's this saying, which it shouldn't be a saying, but there's a saying, touch not the Lord's anointed. So if a pastor, if you criticize the pastor, they'll say, oh, touch not the Lord's anointed because you can't criticize the pastor because the pastor is a final authority. Now, for those of us who don't abide by that <laughs> misrepresentation of scripture, right? But no, but, 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 there's, but there's, there's a connection here because for the Christian who doesn't, who, who believes that, yeah, you should be allowed to um, criticize your pastor or not criticize, but examine him, cross-examine him, critique him. Um, there's a point where we it's not a matter of opinion versus opinion, like, okay, I like this pastor versus that pastor. Um, but we come back to scripture, which is what how we verify whether um, the pastor is speaking truth or he's speaking lies. And so I, um, I, I know you've read the book um, and you promote the book, uh, The Beginning of Infinity. By David Deutsch, um, which yes. is, yeah, which is about um, you know, the world is a is popular science, how transform the world of popular science, and so as it relates to understanding what side to pick yeah. and what is the science for the Christian, when we criticize our pastor or uh, critique the pastor, we can come back to the Bible. For somebody who is trying to figure out what's going on with what side to what what's right what would you point them to in regards to verifying something is true especially if you don't have a background in statistics or um kinesiology yeah. or biology well i mean the, the first thing i would say is it's it's entirely implausible to me that uh, god would have given us a brain without intending for us to use it yeah. um mm-hmm. and i don't think that that should be such a contentious statement the human brain is the most remarkable feature of the known universe. Um, there, it, it makes man the most remarkable being in the physical natural universe. And we, I think, do ourselves a great disservice when we behave as if that is not the case. Um, so, so to me, I, it, that kind of uh, deferral to authority is the opposite of the Christian message. Mm. It's 
I, I've recently uh, commented on somebody. Somebody was asking a question sort of about, to some extent, why we see less polymaths. Um, but I was, I, I think, you know, what we're talking about here, my answer was that we no longer consider appeal to authority a fallacy. And um, I think it's, I, I feel like that's so much true here where it's like, well, I'm just going to appeal to this authority because I'm not going to do the thinking for myself. Um, and I, you know, I wonder for, for those of us that are trying to engage with others and, you know, like Darnell said, the, the kitchen table conversations and, and the, and the people just say, well, Fauci says, and they just instantly, their logic is just to appeal to authority. Um, you know, I wonder yeah. if you can speak to maybe some of the, the, the rationale as to, or not rationale is not the right word, but, but what has changed over time to get us to the place where people just want to say, okay, whatever this authority says, I don't have to think. Yes. I, I mean, I have thought about that a lot and it's, it's such a difficult question because you wonder whether our age is any different from ones that have gone before and you know, how much of that depends on where on the planet you find yourself and what stratum of society, what community. But I do have a feeling that our education systems in the West have become incredibly balkanized. You, you use the term polymath. I like that one very much. Um, I like also the concept of an autodidact in an age where knowledge and information is so readily available at the touch of a button and at such low marginal cost. Um, we should be seeing exactly the opposite. Yet culturally, it seems to me that what's happened is critical thinking has somehow fallen by the wayside. So, yeah, so for me, it's, an, <clears throat> it's, it, it's becomes so evident so many times how these scientists sit in a very narrow field, opining away in their field with, with complete insouciance about the ramifications outside of their four walls. Um, and what, what that does is when you present it with a very complex problem, you know, which, of which an epidemic of some infectious disease is, a, is, is a, a sterling example, what happens is they tend to try and understand the world and create uh, policy recommendations using overly simplistic models of the situation in their own heads. And I think that has been on display in spectacular and devastating fashion during this, this epidemic. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a very uh, accurate statement. Um, you, you spoke a little bit about the, the education system, um, and it reminds me of the talk, one of the talks you gave uh, that's on, well, I've been watching on Odyssey as a means to try to <laughs> boycott YouTube, but um, I think it was... A longer title, but the the key words in there were competing ideologies. Um, yeah. And I I wonder if you could expound on how the competing ideologies have really shaped a lot of the pandemic response. Yeah, we unfortunately are in an era where there is a resurgence in the ideology of centralism. Um, every generation sees one of these, but ours is particularly acute and unprecedentedly global in its reach. We know why centralism doesn't work as a plan for society, and we know that it doesn't work. 
How do we know that it doesn't work? Because wherever it has been tried, it has resulted in nothing but staggering, staggering injustice, death, and economic destruction. We know why it doesn't work, for reasons very close to what I was talking about just now, that when you are dealing with complex phenomena, it is impossible to try to plan your way out of your problem or into your solution. We have understood this for a long time. We, are, we can describe it mathematically. We can describe it economically. We can de describe it in the science of complexity theory. But this doesn't stop people from falling for the idea that the world would be better managed if only there was a committee of extremely clever people in white coats deciding what to do for the Muppets out there. And that is very much the whole ethos, not only of lockdown, but of these organizations who turn out to have much more power in our lives than they ought to. And I speak now of organizations like the World Health Organization, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, and any number of jumped up would-be epidemiologists that we find among our political classes. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's a very disturbing set of affairs because I believe that it's, we, we, what we found happening is that uh, democracy is now under very rapid retreat in the West under the pretext of a deadly epidemic, which isn't really deadly at all. And we stand on the brink of a, a catastrophe far greater than the epidemic itself. Um, and the potential for our societies to collapse into the kind of non-generative, static, uncreative mono-worlds that are introduced whenever central planning rears its ugly head and becomes the flavor of the day. Yeah, I, th I, I actually had to write this down. I think it's from that, that same talk. That you, you had this quote that is exactly along. It said, you said, centralization destroys the means for error correction. Yeah. And I thought it was, it, it's so profound. And, and I think about it, you know, I think you're probably thinking a little bit more in the, the scientific world, but I'm thinking about it, you know, very much also in the, the economic side. Like I always talk about, you know, I'm very pro free market, you know, prices are signals. And, you know, I think, you know, controlling or, or, Price controls are a perfect example of that. When you limit the ability for prices to change, you limit the signals that something has changed, which then is the means that you you make a correction. Um, and if you don't have the means to make the correction, you compound the error. Yeah, it's a very interesting uh, point of discussion. And I could maybe interest your viewers by inviting them into a theological um, interpretation of that. Um, you know, it, it's, there, there are two, you, you can dichotomize the world into those people who believe that there is such a thing as reality, which is accessible to us and can be described by our theories. And those theories and explanations need not only be confined to some category called science, that, you know, you can more broadly engage with the world 
expecting there to be such a thing as reality that is amenable to human understanding. Uh, the alternative is to believe, as many postmodern philosophers do, that there is no such thing as objective reality and explanations and interpretations and theories are all uh, in the eye of the beholder. Uh, that the universe is basically tricked out to trap us. You know, there is no substantive underlying objective reality. Now, I believe that that doctrine, that postmodern approach to, to knowledge <clears throat> is contradicted by its own premises. I believe that the universe is, is readily understandable and that our knowledge knows no limits, that we can always improve on what we knew yesterday. Um, so, yes, uh, in, in many ways, destroying the means of error correction is the ultimate evil mm. because it prevents us from solving our inevitable problems. Um, mm. And it is, you know, if you combine these two things, or three things we've been talking about really, you know, this authoritarian approach to science, this tendency to destroy the means of error correction because of it, the highly balkanized form our education institutions have taken, and then this, this last uh, problem that, that we're speaking of, which is uh, the tendency of people to believe that there is no underlying, underlying objective reality, you create something of a perfect storm for horrible policy prescriptions and very tragic outcomes. Mm -hmm. And also you have people that live in fear, right? Yes. And okay. Item number four, <laughs> you know, where, where do we, what did, what were the stories we told ourselves before COVID? What were the characteristics of a person that we would admire? Courage was one of them. And, and courage is not an absence of fear. Courage is the character to be calm and to make sensible decisions when you are fearful. It's the ability to overcome your fears. Yes, Nelson Mandela. Correct. Uh, among others. You know, it's a point made by a great many philosophers. Um, and I think what's happened is, in a way, this whole culture of safety has corrupted our thought processes. We've made a virtue out of being scared. And, and we are now <laughs> reaping the whirlwind. A virtue out of being scared yikes yeah that's uh it's and and i think you know that sort of transitions to you know a good question of like why are people so fearful and you know for the most part i think you, i i might butcher the way you describe it but i think you describe it as the entire covid narrative is fraudulent Yes, I, I, I do believe that is the case, and it might be worthwhile unpacking it. But I mean, the 10,000-foot <clears throat> the the 10, view on that would be, well, let's take a look. 
uh, the virus is not nearly as dead, deadly as advertised. Uh, you know, to the extent that there are uh, um, probably a majority of people out there who are simply not susceptible to it, who have some form of pre-existing or cross-immunity, it's, it's not really a novel virus. You know? um, the lockdowns and mask mandates that we are told are the only way to save us from all dying turn out not to work when you consult the data. Um, there are any number of treatments. We should not be waiting for people to arrive at the hospital door before they are seen by a doctor and attended to in the way you'd normally attend to a person with a respiratory virus. Um, this idea that the right way to deal with the public is to try and scare the living daylights out of them is, I think, um, a morally false one. Mm -hmm. so it's, it's, it's immoral in the extreme. And um, this, you know, I can go on. Universal susceptibility as a doctrine is wrong. Mm -hmm. um, this. Sorry, what do you mean by universal susceptibility? That, that everybody, uh, that this, this, this virus is completely novel and our immune systems have never seen it before. And therefore that anybody who's exposed to it is going to get sick. This is what universal susceptibility means. Mm. Um, whereas what, what is actually the case, you know, and it has been known since February of 2020, is that this virus is actually very closely related to uh, at least four circulating, broadly circulating uh, beta coronaviruses um, that our immune systems routinely recognize and deal with. And that even though it has novel elements, which differentiate from, differentiated from other members of its order or genus, um, our bodies are able to recognize, uh, uh, you know, many of the, the features of the virus. And, and in the case of many, many human beings know how to respond from an immunological point of view. So I think, um, you know, the, I think you've mentioned it before, but, but the Diamond Princess cruise ship, you know, is a, is a great case study that really was, I, I want to say it was super early on. Like if we're talking March, if I'm not mistaken, March, April timeframe. That yeah, just fe fe February the event, oh, and okay. the two the two papers that came out as you you you're 100 correct were both in in March, and painted a very clear picture which showed you that a minority of people were susceptible and that this uh, disease was not of uh, did not present material risk to people under the age of 65. So, you know, at that time, you know what, how how should that information have have drastically changed the narrative because the narrative, as you said, universal susceptibility, it's extremely novel. You know, the, the case fatality rate was convoluted with infection fatality rate to, to, you know, show that it was more, uh, deadly than, than actual, you know, uh, context dictates, you know, so what, what should have been the shift in, let's say, um, our perspective of the risk and, and then a response. Yeah. So there, in my opinion, there should never have been, uh, a shift towards lockdowns as, as a policy response, but accepting that there was one, I think any epidemiologist worth his salt at that point should have said, right, we have everything we need to know to um, be completely convicted that the right way to approach this is to adopt um, an, a, a needs-based focus protection kind of strategy. 
um, in response to this virus. There is absolutely no need to be keeping kids away from school and people away from their workplaces. There's no need to be sequestering them indoors. And it, in fact, all you needed to do was blow the dust off your um, pandem pandemic respiratory virus guidelines and look at what they had to say and implement that. We would have had far better outcomes, far lower mortality as a result of coronavirus if we had done those things. So if I'm not mistaken, then you're, you would be saying that the data early on gave us the idea that what the Great Barrington Declaration suggested was, was the right approach, and the data was pointing us in that direction. Yes, and I mean, what's very important to understand there is the, the Great Barrington Declaration was not saying anything new. You know? That was what the, 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 the corpus of uh, public health thinking over decades, 100 years, that was the conclusion that that corpus had reached. And that's why the guidelines say what they, what they say, you know, or said what they said, should I say, mm -hmm. given that we've all rushed to tear them up. Um, <clears throat> yeah, there's, there's nothing controversial about that document. The controversial story was lockdown. Mm -hmm. the, the other thing, of course, that, that was also evident early, very early on, you know, these crazy modelers who assumed that everybody was susceptible and that the mortality rate was very high, everybody was at risk, and that if we didn't lock down, we'd all die. Um, they projected for Sweden that if it didn't lock down, it would incur excess mortality of some 90,000 people, quite a lot for a smallish country. In the event, very famously, Sweden did not lock down. And, you know, those extra 90,000 deaths were meant to occur within the space of a few weeks. And they simply didn't. Sweden closed the year, the whole year of 2020, not just quarter two, um, with somewhere between zero and 7,000 excess deaths, depending on how you measure it. Mm. So it was quite clear already that although um, mortality everywhere in the world was coming out much lower than the modelers presented, it was not because of the lockdowns. And that should also have been something that was used to course correct policymaking, and it never was. Yeah, these, these modelers, um, you know, was there any public scrutiny that you knew of that around those models, what the inputs were, what the assumptions were? Was there any, let's call it scientific or public discourse on the validity of these models? Um, because again, it, it looks like the, the epidemiological data isn't matching up with the modeling data but no real corrections occurring. Yeah. Well, the, the answer is there, to the extent that there was any, it was modest and insufficient. Um, you know, before we internationalized Panda and were uh, an organization focusing on the South African situation, uh, which we, we no longer are, um, we were actually invited into the South African Coronavirus Modeling Consortium to give comments on the models and the the you know that was done in a uh it was recorded it's a best recording still available on youtube um it was faithfully reflected our comments were faithfully reflected in in mainstream media this is way back in may last year and we thought oh this is great they they've they've listened to what we've said you know we supported it all with good solid evidence only to find out five days later that the 
Modelers were out with even worse models. And uh, our modelers in South Africa pulled out the spectacular stunt of overestimating the hospital bed uh, demand under conditions of lockdown by between 13 and 17 times, leading to massive squandering of resources and empty field hospitals all over the place. So I guess the question, what, what, you know, may, I mean, maybe the easy answer is China, but what is the origin of sort of this lockdown approach? I've, I've read an article, I think it was by uh, AEIR, American Institute for Economic Research. They sort of are, you know, park it back to 2006, saying that this lockdown plan sort of came out of a, you know, one of the, let's say, uh, Bush advisors, like grade six daughter's science experiment. And it was really about restricting mobility. Right, the less interactions people have, the less the virus spreads. Um, you know, I'm wondering, can you comment on that, or or was it really just you know maybe a, a propaganda play by China? You know, where did this lockdown approach really come from? Considering all the pandemic plans said this is a bad idea. Yeah, I, I have uh, read that article, and it's a very interesting perspective. Um, but it, I think the the truth is rather more than that. <clears throat> I, I would what the way I describe this is that in parallel to all these um, public health institutions formulating their pandemic guidelines over the course of decades, as I described earlier, there have been some rather, I would say, sinister, I would use the word sinister organizations in the background um, that have been hosting meetings over the decades in which they laid out their own plans for what ought to happen in the event that there was a pandemic. And we speak of these famous meetings that are now, you know, a year ago, if you spoke about them, people said, oh, you're a conspiracy theorist. Now it's, I think, pretty much accepted that the meetings took place. It's accepted that what was said at them contradicted the, the prevailing guidelines. Um, and so the, the, what are these events? Agenda 201 at the end of 2019. Um, we had uh, meetings organized by Johns Hopkins University and by the, the, the Rockefeller Foundation. Um, and, you know, in all of these meetings, you can see these people just blithely sitting there and talking about implementing um, things that amount to social distancing, implementing media blackouts and censorship, um, using... Uh, behavioral psychology to manipulate the, po the population into believing falsehoods. Um, <clears throat> and that was all happening in parallel. And that's where the ideological aspect of this takes its nasty turn and is an aspect which I think is completely, you know, under-regarded. Um, in the... Organizations like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, IHME, the World Health Organization, there is a culture of favoring centralist solutions. Mm. When really early on in the whole story, an academic who was a silent supporter of Panda put us in touch with the Gates Foundation. Because we were pointing out that one of the many things that was going by the wayside in the haste to lockdown in South Africa was that childhood vaccination programs were more or less being suspended. 
And we thought that the consequences of that might be greater than the benefits of lockdown, just that single factor alone. And he thought that the Gates Foundation might be interested in hearing our perspectives, not only on that specific thing, but more generally on the failings of policy as it was being rolled out at that stage, talking about May, early June last year. And it was a very interesting engagement. They had done some homework. They had listened to one of our first public webinars, where we spoke for, I think, nearly an hour and a half, uh, detailing much of what I've already told you. I mean, the stuff was all clear very early on. And even though we contradicted the bulk of their narrative in what we were saying, the thing that upset them the most was a little throwaway comment that I had made in the Q&A session. When asked what I thought of the US government's federal response, which is to say Trump's response, I said I was actually quite delighted that there wasn't a uniform federal response in the United States. It meant that every state would make up its own mind about what to do. And when the dust had settled on the epidemic, we would be able to take a look back and see what methods worked and what methods didn't work. And by the way, that that, uh, prediction has actually come to pass. We now can see that the states that implemented mask mandates had no better outcomes than the states that didn't. The states that had more draconian lockdowns had no better outcomes than the states that had mild ones or didn't have any lockdowns at all. We can see all of these things. So that, that, that prediction was true. But the staffers at the Gates Foundations were ap- at the Gates Foundation were absolutely incensed by this perspective. It upset them much more than our observations about the in- inadequacy of their models and their misapprehensions of general risk. And that spoke volumes Mm -hmm. for me about the ideological presuppositions of the people on the other side of this fence. Well, I mean, I know it's not a perfect control group, but but really it sounds like you're saying, hey, look, we're going to have good scientific data to do analytics. And they're going, no, no, we don't want that. Um, let's, let's, you know, this, I've never spoken about this, but I would like to just take a slightly deeper dive on one issue. Sure. Underlying the doctrine of slow the spread, which is one of the sort of axiomatic assumptions behind social distancing and quarantining, is the idea that slowing the spread is in fact beneficial. Mm. And I don't believe that that has ever really been adequately shown. I can give you, for example, a a very simple construct in which slowing the spread would be destructive. What if asymptomatic transmission does indeed happen with some degree of regularity, but involves very small doses of viruses that don't tend to make people sick. In other words, the little asymptomatic spread events tend to function so as to build up a kind of community inoculation. Mm -hmm. What a wild idea. Under those circumstances, slowing asymptomatic spread would actually cause community resistance to decline. 
And when you actually look at the impact of mobility reductions and social distancing in the data, what you, what you see is a kind of pro-contagion phenomenon, a pro-death phenomenon. So you shut down uh, movement and you see worse case growth and worse death growth. Um, so I wonder whether something like the story that I just gave you isn't closer to the truth than this um, hitherto never believed idea that asymptomatic transmission is the source of the deadly epidemic or a primary driver of the deadly epidemic. So even that basic assumption of slow the spread being a valid objection, uh, objective, I think uh, demands scrutiny. <clears throat> and that scrutiny is, I would say, almost impossible in the current environment. Mm. Well, and would you say that slow the spread and flatten the curve are essentially the same thing? No, well, you know, flatten the curve was the idea that, you know, just for during the peak of the epidemic curve, we need to, we need to do these things to slow the spread so that the hospital system doesn't become overburdened. And of course, that uh, perspective was um, completely yielded within a matter of weeks. You know, two, two weeks to flatten the curve be, then became two a years. year, a year and a half. <laughs> and people stopped talking about flattening the curve. And a very false move was made that it was somehow about saving lives. And a, a little known fact is that the very models that put us into lockdown do not themselves predict that coronavirus mortality will be lower because of lockdown. They predict that coronavirus mortality will be higher because of lockdown. The flattening of the curve comes at the cost of greater down the road mortality. Mm. And they were just silent on that little, little unfortunate, uncomfortable truth. Yeah, from what I recall, you know, the Imperial College model, I remember watching, I can't remember who it was now, somebody critiquing it because, you know, they only showed us the first part of the graph, but the extended graph or timeline shows lockdown, open up, lockdown, open up, lockdown, open up until you get to, you know, a vaccine intervention. And again, you're assuming universal susceptibility, all the things that we've already broken down as, as potentially problematic. Yeah. Um, and so again, it's, you know, a lack of public discourse, a lack of critiquing of these ideas to say what's good about them, what's bad about them, just push the mantra. Hundred percent. So you mentioned uh, the ideologies again, and and for me, this is sort of a let's say a working hypothesis that I have, considering how bad Canada, specifically Ontario, has been locked down. I want. I I feel that there's, or or I've sort of thought. I shouldn't say feel. I have thought that part of the reason for that is because we are so socialistic in Canada, especially with our healthcare system. Our healthcare system is essentially a hundred percent socialized. Um, you know, maybe 95 is probably a better number, but it, that to me seems like a huge catalyst for why this ideology has been so pervasive in that our lockdowns are so ridiculous when our numbers, you know, especially when you look outside of some of the big metropolitan areas are, are basically non-existent. It's an interesting idea. And it, you know, my in intuition is to say that that could be a factor. But it is also the way in which Sweden's healthcare system is articulated, and that was not the outcome there. It's a 
similar sized country to, to Canada. What's your population in Canada? Uh, 30 million. 30 million. Okay. So a little bit bigger than Sweden, but, um, <clears throat> you know, um, yeah, it could be a contributing factor, but I would look for cultural reasons faster than, than uh, institutional ones, really, um, for why the population was so accepting of these infringements of rights and of quite extreme collectivist dogma. Um, I would look at the education system and I would look at the, the, the sort of spirit of the times. Um, there have been, uh, even before COVID, quite dramatic moves against freedom of speech, particularly in Ontario province, where, mm-hmm. which I understand to be the, the worst offender in Canada in terms of draconian and nonsensical policies. Um, and so I would not shortchange, <laughs> in, in a, I would not shortchange a, a thorough investigation of, of, of issues like that. Uh, mm-hmm. But also, I would look at to what extent your media is centrally controlled. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, it's it, yeah. In that sense, Canada, Ontario, and Canada is 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 exceptionally brutal uh, for yeah. our, I would say, state-run or state-funded or state-propped up media. Um, mm. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the most egregious things that has been going on in Canada right from the beginning, and which is something that flies completely in the face of of all science on the subject is the continuing deployment of PCR tests at what are referred to as high cycle thresholds. You know, the PCR test works by amplifying the genetic material in a sample. And once you go beyond a certain point of amplification, you cease to detect coherent viruses, functional viruses, and you start detecting um, you know, nucleotides that are basically incapable of making a person infected or infectious. And Canada and Ontario province in particular to con- continues to deploy PCR at levels that exceed the level at which viruses likely to be in the sample by a factor of a million. Two to the power of 20. Mm-hmm. So almost all of your results that occur at those upper reaches of the, the cycle threshold range will be what can be referred to as clinical false positives. They are flagging somebody as a case of coronavirus, which is a disease, a case of COVID, you know, mm-hmm. when they actually are, are neither infected nor infectious. and this does a couple of things. First of all, it inflates all the numbers you're looking at, causing mass hysteria. And secondly, it completely disrupts people's lives and triggers a wave after wave of contact tracing as they run around trying to then pick up, you know, who it was you were in touch with, who you may have infected, even though your sample proves that you were not capable of being infectious. Um, <laughs> and, um, and, uh, you know, in those people, then you pick up another wave of false positives and uh, another wave of hysteria. And, and this practice has been completely understood and documented. And one of the few things that the World Health Organization has gotten right in this whole 
sorry, saga, is that eventually in January this year, they updated their advisory on PCR testing and pointed out that it was incorrect to use PCR at high uh, thresholds and to diagnose cases in the absence of clinical signs and symptoms. Uh, much to our horror and dismay, governments all over the world have completely ignored that advisory and continue to define positives and cases based exclusively on these junked out PCR results. Mm-hmm. It, it's what's interesting is that um, looking at how Canada has been handling uh, these measures, it, it reminds me of, of, well, it's funny. Yesterday was the first time um, or nine years ago, yesterday was when I first proposed to uh, my, my wife and it was in Chicago's great event. And it made me think about traveling. And when I have conversations with people about about um, vaccinations, uh, usually the motivation for people getting vaccinated is travel and fear of not being able to travel. Now, on your website, when it talks about uh, the reopening protocols, uh, you have a section on protocols for reopening society, business, travel, and leisure. And you say uh, livelihoods affect lives directly and indirectly. Turning a blind eye to, to this reality is a crime against humanity. Sports and the arts are what connect us and make us human. Destroying them denies our humanity. So how can you expound on that? Like how does traveling um, and the freedom of movement, how is that a human right? I, so I take a fairly, um, say, uh, limited approach to the question of rights. I think we have been far too inclined to interpret rights in a positive sense as opposed to a negative sense. And what do I mean by that? So, you know, it, Rights make a lot of sense to me when we talk about <clears throat> protecting people from infringement of their liberty by, in particular, governments, but also by other human beings. When we start talking about positive rights, the right to whatever, education, healthcare, an income, a house. Internet. Internet. I think we start entering dangerous territory, not because any of those things are bad things. I obviously want more of them for all the people on the planet, but because inevitably some crackpot politician somewhere starts making decisions as to who should get how much of what. And the moment you go there, you are in the domain of centralism and in this dangerous territory of having people who think they are God's gift to human society, trying to make determinations about priorities and risk management for other people. Mm -hmm. Can you expound more on what you mean by um, negative and positive rights? Yeah, so if... you, you, you invalidate my right to freedom of speech by deplatforming me from your university or from 
the public square in some way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you invalidate my right to life by committing an act of violence against me. So, you know, it is <clears throat> very different from me. That's, that's an interpretation emphasizing the negative aspect. Okay. Um, that's different from uh, an interpretation that says, um, you know, uh, I have the right to a better house, so you, Joel, must pay for it. <laughs> and um, I think when you look at the whole flavor of these large supranational organizations, they are great enthusiastic supporters of elaborate systems of positive rights enshrining them as such doc in such documents and concepts as the strategic development goals you know um and it's very dangerous turf this you know implicit in in such enshrinement is the idea that they can only be delivered by these large overtly centralized international organizations like the united nations or the world health organization and that if for some reason or other they are incapable of arising as goods in uh, a free and open society. Okay, so that makes sense. Okay, so yeah, mm-hmm. so you're saying that when you take away a person's um, mm-hmm. freedom to speak, uh, a freedom to move about, that's the negative right? And would you, yeah. would you say that's also like an inalienable right, like a negative right? You know, in, in principle, there should be. Um, but in practice, they aren't. They're alienated all the time. And uh, that is why we need to be continually vigilant against authoritarians and would-be technocrats. Time and time again, the, world, the history of the world has proven to us that allowing such people to gain the reins of power is a disaster for all except the powerful. And it has been particularly disturbing for me to see people who have conventionally thought of themselves as coming from the left and liberal becoming absolute psychophantic supporters of power grabs by inveterate technocrats who would impose a kind of CCP light on the world. Actually, I, I scratch the word light. <laughs> People who would impose a surveillance state upon the free societies of the West, which have been responsible for almost all of the economic growth and reduction in um, uh, childhood mortality, increase in life expectancies that there ever has been in the world. Mm-hmm. That's good. Now, the way how I, I, I engage in debate is uh, I try to avoid being um, negation. I, I, I try to avoid replacing something with nothing, just diffusing a person's argument and not giving them a solution or a hope to the problem. And um, I noticed just listening to doing my, doing my research and listening to your talks and reading your works, you're, you're very big on hope. Yes. And not just saying, okay, well, that's wrong and being dismissive, but offering solutions. And so there's a lot of people, um, as we know, um, who are in despair. Um, and 
you know, agree with, agree with you and probably behind closed doors more so, what kind of hope would you give them for the future in being able to hold to their convictions? Is there an organization? Is there something they should look forward to? What would you say? I would, I would first uh, talk about what might come that is good from this situation. I think most people, most ordinary people out there, people like me, know that the world has been getting crazier and crazier <laughs> and that at some point the craziness needed to be brought to an end. We have, before COVID, been subjected to some of the most egregious breaches of basic logic and common sense. You know, we're told every day that what's relevant is not what actually is the fact of the matter when it comes to understanding the world, but somebody's lived experience. We're told that there are no longer two genders, that there are 57 of the damn things, and that people who are quite obviously men should be uh, allowed to engage in women's sports. Um, we are told that the world is full of systemically racist people, that there's a massive gender pay gap, that if the climate change doesn't get us, then uh, the AI singularity surely will. And I think most people are highly suspicious, if not of all of those claims, then at least of most of them, and secretly wish that the world would move on from <laughs> this kind of collective madness, even if it is not possible for them to say so in their work environments or at their universities. But in many ways, the coronavirus scandal is laying bare the perils of making that kind of philosophy your lodestone. And I believe that as long as we don't all capitulate to our would-be technocrat masters, the day will come when we can cast off these nonsensical notions and restore some degree of wholesomeness, common sense, and true progressiveness, true generativity to our societies. How we do that and which organizations we have to join in order to, to bring this happier day forward, well, that depends very much on your own means and your own courage. I, I do remind people, though, all the time that while men go mad in herds, they recover their senses one by one, mm. and that we all have a role to play in helping people recover their senses. People have been made terrified by the specter of the deadly virus, and they need to be held by the hand in some cases, or slapped out of it in others. You, you will know better based on your own immediate circumstances which of the two strategies is required. But it's important 
Don't believe that you need to be moving a million. Believe that you need to move one heart at a time. Yes, if you are looking for information, there are ways to get it. Information that is reliable and that does not contain the lies that are told by our public health officials and mainstream media outlets. Panda is one such organization. Our website, www.pandata.org, is full of articles that are thoroughly referenced, data that is uh, you know, carefully curated, and so you can get all the facts. But ultimately, it's not about the facts. Ultimately, we are faced with the need for strong ethical and moral constructs to come to the fore. And that is within the reach, I believe, of every human being. Mm. It's it's funny as you were talking it reminded me uh, a philosopher that I follow probably don't know him Steve Patterson he has an article that he titled our present dark age um you know contrasting with you know uh the enlightenment period and you know it it also it, it then takes me to what you I think I heard you say that you know a lot of our institutions have been corrupted with a lot of those ideas that you've just described. And getting those institutions, and, and it's not just schools, it's also publications. Um, I think of, I'm not sure if you're familiar with something called the Grievance Studies Affair, uh, yes. where you know they basically were exposing the ability to publish ridiculousness and not get, you know, get through the, the gatekeepers. Um, and so I wonder if you can speak to you know, the, the, how do we you know, what are the applicable steps that we can maybe put in place to undo some of those institutions? I mean, I think for myself, it's like, okay, don't send my kid to those schools. But, Mm. you know, what, what, what other things do you see? You know, obviously Darnell being an educator, don't teach those things. Um, But, but how do we um, navigate these, you know, entrenched institutions that need to fall and, or is it a matter of, you know, the truth will win out and eventually they'll expose their absurdity? I do like the use of ridicule in pointing out the absurdity. And the, the grievance studies hoax was brilliant, in my opinion, in that regard. I mean, some of the, the, the first time I read the, <laughs> the descriptions of the articles that they published, I was rolling around on the floor. They were, they were hysterically <laughs> funny. Um, and th- they were all the more funny because it was completely plausible that they would be able to publish st- such nonsense and that the journals would have been none the wiser because the, the hoax papers were undifferentiable from what passed as academic um, quality research in normal times for those journals. So, you know, it, did, it, did, it was a great example of the effective use of, of ridicule. And I believe that we need to use more of that. Um, I do worry, though, about some of our institutions. To me, they are so far gone that it, it is almost implausible to chart a route towards sanity um, that within our lifetimes or our children's lifetimes, um, they are so uh, fundamentally adrift from anything that could resemble common sense or realism. And I fear, therefore, that the road out of this in some domains will be along an arduous one and that there will be a requirement for people who preserve common sense 
and sound ethical judgment to uh, build new institutions. Institutions that promote things that ordinary people value, like truth and beauty and wholesomeness. And that could take us a long, long time, but it could also be the best time of our lives. You, you, we, the, the, the scope for putting together high-quality, decentralized organizations that are free for, of this burden of uh, inveterate uh, postmodernism and free of this kind of authoritarian approach to knowledge is you know, just so tangibly exciting. I, I would say that in many ways that challenge is, is kind of worth the ride in and of itself. It's, a, it's something that has its own meaning. And I, for one, can see myself involving the rest of my life in the effort to find such new cultural and, um, and uh, educational uh, institutions, new ways of uh, uniting the immense potential of the human brain with strong cultural underpinnings. Yeah, well, that's good. Uh, for like the, the Christ, Christian history has this saying that the uh, blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And when you look at the success of the church, it's always been during persecution and bloodshed. And actually, the, 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 the church has suffered during prosperity, times of prosperity. And so, like for me as a Christian, I, I look at this and I'm thinking to myself, um, persecution, ostr being ostracized, um, being segregated um, is, is part of my history. and this is where the faith has grown the church has grown and even like like when when you look at aspects of people being drawn closer to god people get are drawn closer to god they hear from god the most during suffering right cuz that's what cuz that cuz that's when you need him the most but nobody ever but but everybody says everybody always says you know i i want to hear from god i want to be closer to god well no but that that means you got to suffer and nobody's praying for suffering. So um, it's a comfortable, it's, it's a good place to be in and, you're, and you, that's how you know you're, well, for me, and hopefully it's an encouragement to the listener that this is where, you know, if, 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 if your faith is, is of, uh, if, you have, if you're part of the Christian faith, uh, this is something encouraging to say, yeah, hard times uh, definitely um, leads to God's grace leading you to better places. Cometh the man, cometh the hour. Mm -hmm. I, I agree with you. I, um, I have been somewhat disturbed by the extent to which the church has uh, forsaken the flock in this uh, episode. And I know that's a large generalization, but if I, if I scrutinize the utterances of Pope Francis around this whole story, I'm, I've been horrified mm -hmm. at the extent mm -hmm. to which he has sided with the uh, this debasement 
of human agency and this rush to overt collectivism, which is so at odds with the, the prior teachings of the, of the Catholic Church. You know, for, for example, the whole doctrine of subsidiarity is in a large part a Catholic invention. Yep. Yeah, we've talked about and, that many times. Yeah. And um, it, it was a terrific insight and one which should have been curated with the utmost care. Um, so what, what, what I have been saying to religious leaders, many of whom I've spoken to, is that I think there's actually a, a kind of uh, febrile aspect to, to um, the religious discourse which predates um, coronavirus by many years. And I've tried to ask them to teach a more muscular version of their faith. I, I, my, my diagnosis of what has happened is that <clears throat> as it has become harder for secular society to accept the metaphysical aspects of religion, people have become inclined to discard the cultural aspects. And it is incumbent, in my mind, it is incumbent upon the church to talk to those people too, and not only to the people who have strong metaphysical convictions. So it, the, where the church has failed is that it has not been willing to argue the, the virtues, the moral realism of its positions. And in so doing, I believe that it has failed a great many people. In the same way that the epidemic is a very complex thing, so too navigating our lives in the world from an ethical and moral perspective is a very complicated story. Mm -hmm. And in the stories of ages is great wisdom. Whether you buy the metaphysical aspects or not is irrelevant. And so yeah. I appeal continually to pastors and religious leaders to flex some muscle and to become a little more clear to, to when they talk to our children and when they talk to the general population to present to them something that conveys the enormous value and wisdom that I believe lies at the heart of the Christian tradition. Yep. What's, what's fascinating about these times, and you know, my background is history, uh, and what I love about history is especially like the, you're, you live in these unique times. So this is definitely a unique time in history where people will read about us and study about our time that we're living in. And one of the unique things about our time, especially in relation to the church, is that we're seeing uh, how our church polity, the politics within our church, because politics is everywhere, but we see the DNA of our individual churches because every church has kind of handled everything differently. And so all of us, you know, when you have those conversations, okay, what's your church doing? Oh, what's your church doing? Now there's churches who haven't 
have been um, who haven't opened since the first lockdown. Yeah. And that's a reflection of the church um, and the, the, the people they have in their church. So for example, this would be like a Chinese church that would, that that's done something like this um, because of the history of SARS in their community. And these are different aspects that they deal with. And then there's other ones who said, okay, well, we're not shutting down and we're going to remain open because the government has no authority over us because the church is its own entity. It's, final authority is Jesus, not the state. And then there's others who are saying, okay, well, you know, we're going to follow the state's mandate and go from there. And it just, it's just a reflection of, of your leadership and the DNA of your church. And so people are kind of discovering this now to see, okay, well, this is, this is what my church really values, the fellowship, the community, or maybe they value, um, our public testimony um, to unbelievers. So it's a very unique time in history. I totally agree with you. And you've hit on a very important strand there, which is the extent to which so many of the measures seem to be almost consciously directed at undoing all that is local. Community is the word you mentioned. Um, I, I the, you know, by, by the same... Um, logic that leads me away from centralism, I'm greatly moved towards localism. I believe that the doctrine of subsidiarity is right, that uh, decisions should be located at the lowest possible level in hierarchies, not the highest possible level. And that by doing so, you honor the basic ethical construct of recognizing human agency. We derive a lot of our, our sense of meaning, uh, of perspective from the communities around us. And there has been so much done to erode those communities. So I would definitely concur with those churches who are refusing to shut down. Even if that resulted in higher spread of the disease, which I do not believe it does in any harmful way, I would still be of that opinion because I believe that a sense of community, a, a sense of the importance of preserving human agency is a vital thing for a culture to have at its center. It, you know, previously, before we moved into the church topic, you were speaking about, you know, decentralized organizations um, and, and, you know, localization sort of touches on that, you know, it, it made me, I didn't, when you said that, I didn't originally think of the church, but, but I would say the church and church-like institutions um, are, I think, a means to achieve that. And, and as you've said, localizing those decisions. Um, what I'm curious about, this might touch on your private equity side of you a little bit, um, how much do you see things like cryptocurrency and more so the, the underlying technology of distributed ledger playing a role in um, you know, establishing, let's say, more uh, power with decentralized than centralized. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited by them, as are many other people. Um, I think we need to look at those technologies and see how we can use them to um, redesign social media, education, currencies, um, and hopefully a great many other things that we haven't even begun to think about. Um, I think there's a, an enormous potential for 
flourishing as a result of, you know, the, the potential is there at least. We still have to do it. We still have to go and uh, come up with new, what are in effect, institutional structures to deploy these technologies. You know, some, it's not just a matter of saying, okay, well, we'll have a blockchain and it'll be decentralized. You've got to think through the, the governance provisions that will be in place. Um, you know, decentralized is not an, a synonym for free for all. Mm. Um, it, it's just a question of at which level governance takes place and how. And so effort and energy needs to be poured into techniques of creating uh, new institutions and articulating or navigate, navigating the, 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 um, the balance between um, uh, responsibility and uh, what's the, the kind of opposite I'm looking for, but between responsibility on, on, on the one hand and, uh, and sort of and liberty on the other. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm certainly very hopeful that uh, we'll see a lot. And, and, that, and I wonder to what extent it's the, the fact that such technologies are on the horizon that has given people of a technocratic centralist bent this urgency mm. in ushering in uh, the surveillance state. It's almost like they're doing it while they still can. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to make sure that they don't. Yeah, that's a that's a, a very good point, um, and and probably a good time to start wrapping up. So I think uh, the question that I I think is probably a good you know wrap up is you know for Panda you know what they've done and you know with regards to the data and the analytics what what would be maybe some of the big questions that they're currently investigating? Um, I know you guys are looking for volunteers, so maybe how would uh, somebody who's interested in particip- partnering with your organization you know how would that uh, what what type of let's say people or or um, uh, skills would sort of help with the direction that you guys are currently going and, and the things you're currently investigating? So in terms of what we're currently investigating, the biggest problems actually pertain to communication, how to go about this, this activity of bringing people back to their senses one by one mm. and how to do that on large scale and in the face of immense forces of censorship and misinformation at the hands of public health officials. Um, so that, that absorbs an incredible amount of, in, of, of industry and effort. Um, from a scientific perspective, there are still many unanswered questions about this pandemic. We are still grappling with trying to produce a coherent explanation for how this uh, virus spreads and resolving questions like the role of asymptomatic transmission. So the whole transmission of the, of the, the virus and evolution of the disease is a story that um, we believe has been given inadequate attention and uh, where the, the data demands a whole lot of new explanations because the current ones simply don't work. So for example, we can see that the, the spatial distribution of the spatial emergence of diseases in places where we have very fine, a very fine level of detail, where we can see how the, how the 
cases propagated over, over space and time, um, they suggest something other than the story of a natural emergence of the disease, for example, in the UK in the first quarter of 2020. That is not supported by the data. It looks like the disease was already there. Um, there's also a lot of work that has been done to uncover crucial deletions of, from the genomics database of the NIH in America. And they suggest an earlier emergence of this virus from a cluster of related viruses that may have been around well before Wuhan, November, December 2019 um, as well. And so that's a related area that we're particularly interested in. Um, and then we are, of course, watching very carefully to understand the effectiveness of the various pharmaceutical agencies, including uh, the vaccines and various treatments that have been censored. so, yeah, so censored and um, have created so much backlash. So th those from a scientific uh, perspective are, are and, and we keep studying these things, even though mm -hmm. It is already clear what people need to know and, uh, and to, to bring, you know, to realize that this whole overreaction needs to simply be brought to a halt. Um, you know, what we find out about transmission and effectiveness of treatments or vaccines is not going to alter those facts. This, this, this whole reaction should stop and stop immediately. It is not being helpful. It is hurting. It is mm -hmm. harming. Um, so we, we know what we need to know. But the, the scientific questions remain of great interest, and it is the spirit of our organization to continually engage and to continually push the bounds of open science. In terms of uh, joining the organization, we are very open to new members. We look for people who have the ability to commit significant time, and we do not insist that they all, are all scientists. Far from it, the work of communication and of uh, Reaching out to uh, members of the general public uh, takes a great deal more than exclusively scientific <laughs> insight. And so we, we have some of the best and most valued members of our organization, the ones who really get stuff done, are people who come from uh, very distantly related fields like acting and graphic design and uh, you know copywriting um, and uh, you know. People with good managerial ability and, and organizing skills are highly prized. Uh, people who can get those jobs done efficiently. People who are used to working in volunteer organizations where you cannot tell people what to do and need to inspire <laughs> them to do things. You know? <laughs> These are all leadership attributes which we would look for. So we, we do like hearing from people who have time to give. Our organization runs on an absolute shoestring shoe budget, uh, you know, largely crowdfunded. Um, so we depend on energetic and capable volunteers, and we're always willing to hear from them, wherever they may be in the world. I'll, I'll make sure to uh, put the volunteer page in our, in our show notes page uh, to make it yeah. easy if somebody's right. interested. Um, yeah. yeah, that's good. Well, we thank you. Thank you for uh, you know, being gracious with your time and uh, talking to us. It's been a real pleasure. I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation with both of you. Um, and. Uh, Hope that uh, I've managed to insert something that's new for your audience. 
Yeah, thank you. I, I think you you think you will. I think um, a lot of our listeners might have maybe known a lot of things were, were sideways, but hopefully now either through the things you've said or, or links on your website, they can sort of dig in and understand it a little bit better to to rectify the the squirreliness that's sitting in their head, but they couldn't quite comprehend. Um, for for the listener who uh, wants to reach out to you, uh, what would be the best way to either interact or, or consume your content? Um, well, uh, we've mentioned the website, pandata.org. Uh, we also have social media accounts under the handle pandata19, pandata19, um, on Twitter and Facebook. We have a LinkedIn account, um, and we, we do, uh, respond eventually <laughs> to the huge volumes of communications that we get by, by email. Um, but people are also welcome to DM me on Twitter. Um, I do struggle with um, an enormous volume of inbound communication. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I'm not always the fastest responder. That's why I mentioned the, the organizational handles mm-hmm. first. But, uh, you know, we are pleased to hear from people. And um, the, message, the continuous messages of support that we get from people are, are, are very valuable because sometimes the, it feels like we're fighting an enormous battle and uh, it can get a little bit dispiriting at times. Um, I got a very nice note from uh, a scientist in Portugal last night, which uh, uh, almost brought me to tears. I was so pleased to read it. Um, And, uh, you know, all of us do appreciate people's thoughts and perspectives and their own personal stories. Um, They give us ideas about how to inspire other people to do the, the great and courageous acts that are required to get us out of this disaster. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll make sure to uh, put all those uh, links in the show notes page to make it easier for the listener. Um, and thank you, Joe. You know, I want to, I want to say thank you to, to Michael Cavallo who, who helped connect all of this. Um, you know, he's Indeed. doing hard work in, in terms of uh, disrupting his own career because he can't really do what he loves to do. So I definitely Michael has been it. fantastic. He has been the most amazing connector, uh, you know, illustrating just how a person, can bring their own special set of skills to to helping us with our work. He's, he's been a, a star. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you again for your time. We really appreciate it. It's a, it's a pleasure, guys. Thank you. Thank you very much. But you heard me. Does that make sense? Madden and Mitchell Media.